Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, darkrooms, wood shops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concept, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. I'm Harriet Salmon, the host of Craftsmanship, and I'm speaking today with Matt Dilling, a neon fabricator and the owner of Lightbright Neon, a collective of craftspeople that specialize in custom neon with locations in Gowanus, Brooklyn, and Kingston, New York. They fabricated for artists including Glenn Ligon, Krissa, Tavara Strachan, Assume Vivid Astrofocus, and Mira Dancy. I'm hoping to talk a little about the history of neon as a material and Matt's experiences with working for both fine artists and for design clients. I also want to touch on Neon's shelf life and working on restoration of historic neon art for collections, including the Dia Center for the Arts, MoMA, and the Whitney Museum of Art. Matt, I'm going to ask you to jump right into some material history. Can you walk us through the invention of discharge lighting? Just so our listeners know, discharge lighting is defined by Wikipedia as a family of artificial light sources that generate light by sending an electric discharge through an ionized gas, which this family includes neon, which is Matt's specialty. It's hard to trace down where like discharge lighting really began. Um, technically, you could call lightning a form of discharge lighting. It's actually like an electrical transformation that's happening where energy is being released and light photons are being emitted as part of that process. Um, but in the early stages of sort of glass blowing and then vacuum technology, like pulling a vacuum on it, these were very like... So earth- sucking the <clears throat> air out of the inside of the glass. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And this goes back, um, Geisler tubes were done, I mean, you know, 1700s, 1800s, before the Industrial Revolution, and there was really the amount of sophisticated technology that we had. Um, people were making tubes that would light up. And they were lighting them up with high frequency, like high voltage. Um, and and so it was really in the 1800s when the medium started to get refined into something more commercial. Mm-hmm. And in um, 1892, um, they had the Columbian Exposition, the Chicago World's Fair, mm-hmm. and Nikola Tesla did this huge display of illuminated tubes, including spelling out the word light to sort of demonstrate a lot of the technology he was working on at the time. So that was like 
rudimentary neon. It was. Okay. It was. And that, you know, was still 20 years before people would say it was technically invented. Um, but what what it really was, and it, the gas actually hadn't even been distilled at that time. They were using atmosphere and they were using like carbon dioxide. They were using things that they could distill at that time. Um, and it was really like the lead up, mostly medical technology about distilling oxygen and then what else is in the atmosphere and neon being one of the most common things in the atmosphere yeah. was like... Because you need like a pure gas, a pure gas. inside the tube to, to control what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so basically when you pull a vacuum on a tube and you fill it with a gas, if it's a clean tube and you hook it up to high voltage electricity, it will light up. Mm -hmm. Depending on the gas that's in there, it'll light up and emit different wavelengths. And then depending on the color of the glass and also a coating on the inside of the glass. Mm -hmm. So there's really a combination of three factors that create the full palette of colors that we work with. Yeah, I saw your amazing... Um Color, color wheel. Color wheel for showing <laughs> artists what they can choose from. Yeah. Do you have like a travel one too? Like a we do. One? Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that's kind of incredible about the medium is that technically the amount of colors we could do would be somewhat infinite. Mm -hmm. It's just that we're limited to what we can get kind of commercially viable. Gotcha. Um, and since we don't do a lot of like the mixing of color here mm -hmm. and because we specialize in like fine art fabrication we generally want to work with things that we know people could get replacements for down the road or have an ability to like match um for conservation reasons? for conservation yeah. but um, theoretically if if you wanted to you could custom mix a color by ch Blending the gases and then messing with the coatings and the glass color? All of those things. Okay. There's quite a few artists who do that. Not so much in like the larger commercial realm, but there's a number of artists who do their own, you know, blow their own glass and their own color and uh, hand mix phosphors, do things with uh, different pressures, create different light. Uh. Um, there's a really interesting artist named Eric Franklin who does these incredible like blown vessels and he has like these whole skeletons that he does. Because yeah, it doesn't have to be like a glass tube you can make. Exactly. It could be more form. of a vessel. Mm -hmm. It doesn't light up nearly as bright. The resistance of the linear tube is part of what creates the you know, um, transformation of the energy into electricity. So as the resistance decreases, the amount of light that's being emitted also decreases. Yeah, okay. So most of the tubes we work with range on the smallest side really from like six or seven millimeters up to about an inch, like 25 millimeters. To make them brighter. To work with some sort of like okay. consistent, visible level of brightness, yeah. So it like streamlines... The movement of the gas to make it small? Uh, sort of. And I apologize because you're starting to veer on like the <laughs> edge of like, like I don't want to put myself forward as a physicist. I'm, That's you good. know, like I'm an art school dropout. So <laughs> this. Well, I know nothing about this. But, I just want to try and like wrap my brain around yeah, the things the, you can and can't do. The larger thing with it is that when there's an even level of resistance throughout the tube, you're going to get an even amount of light. <clears throat> and that intensity is going to be the same end to end. Um, and there are artists who play with that. Mm -hmm. um, there's some neat uh, artists from the like Boston area named Alejandro and Morasina. 
And they do a lot with like single end tubes. Most of the tubes that we produce are going to have like two ends with two wires on them. They do ones with one wire. Um, and like an artist who we've been doing a lot of production work for named Mary Course. She, in the 1960s and 70s, was really playing with wireless, electrodeless neon. So she has these pieces that are powered by Tesla coils, high-frequency coils, and the tubes themselves have no ends, no wires, and they just sort of hang in space and light up. Because in order to get the light to glow in the tube, you have to run an electrical current through it, or...? How does the electrode... Yes and no. So the electrode is acting to get the power to the tube. So, you know, if you're thinking about just like your cell phone generally needs to be plugged in in order to get power. However, that's, you know, one form of the way electricity can be transmitted, Mm -hmm. basically through wires. The other form is like your cell phone when you're calling someone is transmitting, but it's transmitting through the air and it's transmitting at a different, much higher frequency vibration. So you can use... It freaks me out when I think about it. It really does. When you start thinking about yeah. how much and, you know... I'm like going to start pushing my cell phone away from me. Um, but yeah, so there's other ways of working with the neon to to get it to light up, and one of them is more working with electrical fields. And if you transmit energy at a certain vibratory field, which is what a Tesla coil does, you can then have something that actually receives that and lights up. And so there's ways of doing wireless technology, um, not nearly as far or as vibrant, Um and most of the work that our studio produces is wired, you know, 99% yeah. of it. So it's like a tube with two electrodes and the gas Right, in and a transformer that takes, like, line voltage or whatever and then steps it up to a very high voltage at a very low, low current. Um, okay, so it has to translate the power out of the wall into the mm-hmm. right settings. Is, is the... Um, quote-unquote right settings always the same or does it change with different gases or uh it doesn't change so much per se with different gases but different tube sizes different gases have different levels of resistance Mm -hmm. so the amount of voltage needed to light things is based on what gas is in them what size tube how long how many tubes wow Yeah, there's slide charts. We've got like, <laughs> yeah. it's very analog. We've, we've got slide charts we look at. and Is so. there like a, um, uh, not a speech, but like a talk that you give artists when they come to you that have never worked in neon before about kind of the strengths and weaknesses of the material? Or do you just kind of let them I try to avoid it? that. Yeah. I mean, I... I've found that like the best projects that we've worked on evolve out of listening to Mm -hmm. artists and sometimes they evolve out of like, you know, hitting a wall where there's not necessarily a wall. Um, The, you know, perhaps like our most classic story of a fabricator of this is this time when we were working for Burberry and their creative director wanted to do the plaid in neon and, she was like, you know, one of our colors is black. And I was very young and a little bit more cheeky than I am now. (laughs) And I, in this meeting said, you know, we can't do black. It's the absence of light. It's, you know, I, I said it was against the laws of physics Uh and she responded that she didn't care about the laws of physics. It was like their color scheme and they had to have it. 
Um, so we put forward this idea of like painting the front of a white to black. And so it just has the kind of back reflection. It backlit it. Um, and then, you know, she thought that was great. And a couple of years later, we were meeting with Glenn Ligon. He had a studio in our, our building mm-hmm. and we told, told him that story. And he was like, that's fantastic. You know, <laughs> he, at the time, had been working with this Gertrude Stein quote about the warm, broad glow of the Negro oh, sunshine. Yes. And that was in the Whitney, yep. Whitney yeah. exhibition. Yeah. yeah, they actually have that large piece. It says, it's called Warm, Broad Glow, but it says Negro Sunshine. And it backlights this warm white with the front being black. Which, again, came out of, uh, you know, conversations with him, but also conversations with our director, Burberry, who was Mm -hmm. like, I'm not going to, you know, say, okay, we can't do that. Um, So a lot of times, from a fabricator's perspective, I'll try and just listen to what people are interested in doing, and I'll even check myself if I'm thinking, like, that's not possible. I'll be like, well, is there a way of approaching this problem that, like, I haven't thought about before? Um, Yeah, are there artists that have come to you with a problem that have pushed your skills or made you guys learn a new way of making I'd say that's like every artist we've (laughs) ever worked with. (laughs) I mean, that's why fabricators like to work with artists from the conversations I've had is that it's constant problem solving. It is constant problem solving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the downside of that is that a lot of those problems are often solved. um, So the tuition of learning that is super high. Um, Profitability is really low. You're making a lot more if like you really know how much it costs to make a, you know, grande latte and then you're making thousands of them. Um, yeah. If you're never making the same beverage twice, it's a little like that. Nah. Do art if you problem solve with an artist kind of a technique that or a problem that they're interested in, do they ever ask you not to use that technique with other artists or it's somewhat implicit. I mean it's interesting it's interesting how this comes up. I you know, generally speaking, we try and treat things as proprietary if they come out of a, a work with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, more so from the fine art perspective than from the commercial perspective. Um, you know, it's it's not a lot of what we do is not so specific that it couldn't be replicated. Um, we're we're working on some things right now that are a little bit more fringy. Um, actually for projects that have fallen through, but it kind of piqued our interest. We're actually experimenting a lot right now with doing silver nitrate, which is oh, like interesting. A, yeah. to do like mirroring, mirroring yeah. um, the front of tubes. Cool. You know, and it's like a medieval thing. I mean, yeah. old mirrors were silver nitrate, um, but it's kind of an interesting thing to combine with neon, both because it's like got this conductivity to it. Uh-huh. And also because unlike, you know, if you put like a chrome paint on, it's going to fail over time. Like it's not a really archival thing. Yeah, I feel like I've seen silver paint on neon and in my mind it's like Like peeling. Flaky, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's something we're playing around with. Um, But yeah, you know, a lot of what our goal with working with people is to like create things that are new and generally Mm -hmm. speaking I try and have like some sense of like more obligation to the people we work with um I don't think we've ever been asked explicitly to not 
use yeah. it. But it's an interesting thing now too with like social media because I feel like stuff is so quickly consumed and regurgitated. Yes. And it go, you know, a quick snap of the studio can go from a private moment of in the process of making something to thousands and thousands of people Absolutely. immediately and there's no uh, context, physicality. Yeah. None of that. It's yeah. just out in the world yeah. before you know it. Like that whole ownership of any kind of creative content is really complex right now, I yeah. think. Um, which weirdly, and this isn't, I know I'm like going in down a rabbit hole, but like weirdly to me, it's actually part of what makes Neon so special is it's this handmade medium. Like everything is hand bent. Um, and there is this like je ne sais quoi, or there's this like quality to things where there's like handwork involved that you actually can't replicate. And to me, it's incredibly amplified by like the, that quality is amplified by the things that are not done that way. Mm -hmm. So like the more there's like, you know, there's a lot of people doing incredible 3d graphics work that looks like neon and we've actually had several people come through to meet with us and talk about it so they can build their visual vocabulary. But almost always I can right away tell when something is not actually the yeah. medium. Yeah. And more so now because of the amount of like digital reproduction, like you have such a different experience, like a qualitative experience. And it's this thing where I feel like it becomes much more meaningful to have those experiences yeah. as they like become rarer, you know. I mean, you mentioned on your website that Lightbright is um, contributes to the Renaissance of Design Build Studios. I mean, like as a moment right now where what you're talking about has become more desirable because mm -hmm. it's it's so easy to see something that's made by hand and not replicable by machines or mass production. Can you talk a bit about that renaissance and how, like, the art world? Because there seems to be kind of a lot more neon going into the fine art world. I mean, in my mind, um, I'm not an art historian, but in my mind, I'm like, there was Bruce Nauman, uh, Mario Mertz, and a couple of other people. And then in the last 15, 20 years, there seems to be, like, another kind of push of Wave. a lot of... yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I it's, it's that thing with like Nixon. It's like I can't remember who, but someone had asked him about like, what do you think about the you know Chinese Revolution? And he was like, it's too soon to tell. Do you know that <laughs> no. this like historical mm -hmm. moment that I'm totally botching right now? Um, you know, I, I'd say one of the main shifts that I've seen is that as conceptual art like gave way to it not being this like strong divide between craft and makers. There's like people really like, you know, like Glenn is actually a great example. Glenn is a painter. A lot of Glenn's pieces are his hands at work in them. Mm -hmm. um, and then he's also an artist who makes conceptual pieces, who works with us on neon pieces. Um, and works with screen printers and, you know, all, all sorts of other craftspeople. But I, in my perspective, part of what shifted is that you had for a moment there this real divide between what's a craftsperson and what's an artist. Mm -hmm. 
And then conceptual art really sort of like created this whole new way of thinking that was like there is a creative director behind this who's driving it and they can work in tandem with a craftsperson. And it's a much more like medieval, literally, way of working because it's a collaborative. Not way in the working. negative sense of the no, word medieval. Not, not in the negative <laughs> sense, in the historical sense. Um, but that there's been a real interest in bringing craft back in mm-hmm. as a component of conceptual work that it that matters. And um, I mean, it has to be someone has to es- execute the concept. In at the end of the day, someone has to make the thing that's being conceived right. of. And you know, part of what has changed from that era of artists who were doing pieces in the '60s, um, and a lot, you know. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of them, but there's a number of them that are still alive that, you know, we do work with. People like Keith Sonier, mm-hmm. um, Krissa just passed on, but I was always taught that Krissa was the first artist ever to work in neon, which is, you know, I, I like that she's this amazing sculptress and she did a lot of her own work originally with like found pieces Mm -hmm. like she would go and take found commercial work and then she really brought that into her vernacular um but you know a lot of those nauman pieces particularly the pieces from the early 80s are like some of the crappiest made (laughs) neon you know i'm I'm always i like always hesitate when we get asked to do restoration work i'm like when is the nauman piece from (laughs) because some of them it was just this time where it was like it didn't matter and it and then do you you, think they were working with commercial neon fabricators commercial fabricators and didn't care like they're wasn't um there wasn't this real level of needing to care because it wasn't thought of in an elevated way i mean it was you know the early 80s was this fairly low point for neon where it was so commercial and everybody was making it and the quality was just like at you know an all-time low yeah um so i do think there's and to me it's as people care about something and that particularly like from our ethos as a fabricator, like we care a lot, um, probably too much. And, but it, it shows in the work, like that you care about how you're doing something and, and what sort of the, the drive behind a fabricator is. So it's like, if it's, you know, just sort of this like commercial, like high turnover, it has a certain aesthetic quality to it. And sometimes that's great. Like people are looking for that. What percentage of your clients are commercial versus fine art? I hate to kind of polarize it like that, but there's different... Yeah, it's a common question to us. I mean, it really ranges, you know, month to month, year to year. But it's it's pretty Mm 50-50, and a lot of the fine art stuff, you know, can range from, like I'm saying, conservation and restoration work. Um, One of the things that our studio has started doing... Um, really since we expanded to Kingston is we're working a lot more with artists to help produce editions. It's, gotcha. uh, it's been in our zeitgeist for a long time. We just had such limited space and resources, but we're trying to work a lot more, particularly one of the things we've been doing is partnering with artists and nonprofits to produce editions to raise money for those nice. nonprofits. That's great. 
So like right now we're working with Polly Applebaum and Birdcliff mm-hmm. and then Shabala Self and Art Omai and cool. like Marianne Carroll and the storefront for art and architecture. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, it can range. And a lot of the commercial work that we do, you know, is on a, like in a context where that level of like care and quality, you know, the work we do for Apple computer, like they're as picky as any fine artist. <laughs> that makes fine artists across the world feel better. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Everyone's always like, oh, I'm, I'm like the worst. I'm so... No, there's, there's commercial clients that are far more picky than a lot yeah. of artists. That's for sure. Um, and a lot of artists, I mean, I, I would say at the end of the day, it's like if people have a level of like humor and self-awareness around it, it's tough when people's egos get involved in something that's material. Yeah. Like that's inevitably painful for everybody. Um, but that can happen in the fine art context as well as in a commercial context. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's sort of working, there's that element of having to work with that. Yeah. Um, Do you find it, it's that um, people, whether they're artists or commercial creative directors, um, they have specific expectations about what the piece should be and then Neon physically can't live up to those? Or like, what is the um, gap, I guess, between when, it, when there is frustration? Yeah, some, sometimes there's that where it's like, it's like love, right? Where love is about like this intense projection and then love inevitably leads to some sort of disillusionment where you're like having to face oh, your projections <laughs> and own them. Uh-huh. And that, that can be very painful <laughs> or transformative. Um, but, I, you know, I would say the thing... I almost feel like with Neon, it's the inverse, to be totally honest. And I often quote Jerry Saltz on this. He has this quote about art. And, you know, I don't agree with everything Jerry Saltz says, but I think this is a great quote where he says, in his opinion, art should make you go, huh? Wow. Not wow. Huh. You know, and and like neon inherently is more of a wow, huh? Like Mm -hmm. very few people are not wowed by colored light and, you know, so getting, getting it more into the realm where it elevates and draws you in is more nuanced and complex. Yeah. And to me, that's what makes it a difficult medium. And we get plenty of people who, you know, it's very seductive in surface. And so getting beyond that, and that is where, you know, I'm letting my opinions flow kind of freely, but I really love more nuanced work in fine art. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Glenn's work and Krissa, where there is this like poetic element of how yeah. they're using meaning that's brought to it. And they're also referencing its kind of commercial history and using it as like a pop icon and all those kind of yeah, things and, too. And the many layers of that, that it's not just um, that it's like glowing light or that it's seductive or, um, but that there are ways in which um, there's these polarizing elements of it, but there's also this paradox that's contained in it. And that paradox to me is what makes it interesting as a medium, like when you're saying people about the limitations, like those limitations are often there because in many ways it's a new medium. Mm -hmm. It's tied, like I'm saying, to a lot of like commercially available stuff. 
but also you're having to look at it in this context of like, if you're making something, is it, does it need to be conserved? Is it going in someone's home? Is it going outdoors, indoors? Yeah. Um, I mean, I read, a, listened to, I think it was a, a audio file of an interview you did where you uh, mentioned um, that neon has, doesn't, has an unknown lifespan. Can you talk about that? Like, well, <laughs> it's unknown lifespan. We all do impermanence. Yes. Um, so this is where it becomes the Buddhist podcast. Um, Bring it on. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, the longest continuously running neon tube known uh, right now is in a cafe in Los Angeles called Clifton's Cafe. Uh-huh. It's been running continuously since I believe 1932. Continuously, like they've never turned it off? or They never turned it off. Wow. It was actually someone put a wall up in front of it. <laughs> um, and I think it was 2011, they were renovating. Why do we even make conceptual art when things like that <laughs> exist that are so much better? <laughs> Uh-huh. This is all true. Um, they just experience all of light as life is conceptual art. <laughs> um, so the light was on behind the built wall? The wall. Yeah, sheetrock wall. Uh-huh. It's not a very interesting neon piece, really just a square. Um, but, you know, it was backlighting something. They walled up over it in 2011. They were renovating. They realized it had been on continuously. Wow. I mean, I'm sure there was a power outage at some point. But yeah, but it turned back on when the yep. power came on. Yeah, still running, still running today. I believe they have it like framed, and there's like a plaque now. Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine it's in there. It should be, um, but it's if the conditions arise that are right for it. It's not, you know, I've, I often call it that neon's kind of like a kitty cat, like it mm-hmm. self-cleans, like uh-huh. you're not needing to give a cat a bath. Um, the neon electrodes, and this is really what George Claude patented in 1913, was the a neon electrode that has a coating on it that we convert from a carbonite coating to an oxide coating. So that's considered the invention of that's it? What he, yeah. That's his patent was for this electrode that really allowed for the commercial development of it. Because prior to that, lifespans of these tubes were really all over the board, um, but not fairly long. And by creating this electrode shell, which also like, you know, was at that time gave way and was used in like early vacuum tube technology, but allowed for them to run and have been processed with like a less than perfect vacuum. Mm -hmm. So if there's a stray like nitrogen molecule in the tube, it will actually find its way to that coating, to that oxide and combine with it. So the t- the tubes themselves, you know, can last really this semi indefinite period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, when you when people come to you, because you've done conservation work for like Dia and the Whitney, mm-hmm. what is usually failed? Is it the glass is broken? Do, do the electrodes need updating? Like what goes what goes no, wrong? I mean, more often than not. And this is really, you know, touches on like a lot of what we do too. So there's always something in support of the neon, like mm-hmm. physically it's attached to something. There's like a infrastructure that the electrodes and the glass attach to. Right. So it holds its shape. Or, you know, it's connected or it's mounted. Um, you know, the electrical components, a lot of the older electrical components are fantastic, probably better than the ones made today. Uh-huh. Um and the glass tubes themselves, you know, sometimes it's dirty. Uh, 
But when we're doing conservation work, often there's a lot of like trying, you know, there's so many different ways of like feeling about conservation and conceptual work yeah. or Chris's work where like her hands were on it. Well, it's, it's very different than, you know, a nomen piece where there was like a drawing sent to some fabricator. Yeah. And, Have you ever had to do a complete rebuild on a piece? Like just remake the piece from scratch? Yes. Yeah. Recently we remade uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres's Untitled America, which mm -hmm. is the piece hanging in the Whitney stairwell. Um, because earlier iterations that they had of it weren't done with exterior grade wire. But when Felix designed that piece, you know, created that piece, he that's the only light string piece he made that was um, chartered for being exhibited outside. Mm -hmm. So the Whitney gets a lot of requests from people to exhibit that work. And um, in a case like that, it was like, well, here we've got artist intention, but we've got actual like code compliancy things. Yeah. Like what type of wire <laughs> can we... Safe fire hazard. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and those things change over time. So when you design something to go outside, you have to do different like waterproof casings. Exactly. And... Yeah. The whole approach is designed around it being, you know, exposed to the elements and the same would be true. It's like, there's plenty of outdoor paintings, but that doesn't yeah. mean you're going to take your, you know, whatever Manet and hang it out over your pool in Colorado. That's like, <laughs> why not? <laughs> but I see paintings outside all the times. So like, you know, of yeah. course, like, and, and obviously with neon, it's got this commercial connotation. Mm -hmm. So there's this very reasonable direct leap between seeing it outside and believing that that's a, you know, yeah, a, a natural transition that just yeah. should happen. I have a question about how you train people or like where you find people to work in your shop. Is there like a community? I know that I found a website called neonglassbender.com. Yeah, <laughs> that is where we found some people. Zach came through there. Yeah, it's like a very specific skill. Like how does that community interact with the fine art community? Like how much overlap is there? It really runs the gamut. So there's not many schools, but there are a few. Uh, Alfred University, mm -hmm. uh, University of Wisconsin, actually, and like Art Institute of Chicago all have some sort of neon quote unquote program. Yeah. Um, Alfred of those, I, I, as far as I know, kind of has the most thorough. Um, they actually, you know, have several years that you can spend learning stuff. Mm -hmm. But most of the people who we get that are going to be more in that realm have trained specifically in a shop or with somebody, mm -hmm. or if they did a program like that, like two of the people, two of our glass vendors, both went to Alfred. Uh, one went there, one graduated probably about 10, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. and the other one graduated about 35 years ago. Oh, wow. So they were at like opposite ends, the same teacher, but one was one of his first students, one was his last students. Um, and um, so it really runs the gamut. I mean, for what we do, we pretty much have to do on the job training. Yeah. Um, so we, we get people from all walks of life, um, you know, all different kinds of fabricator backgrounds. And then, like I was saying about, like, a lot of what we do is in support of the neon. I mean, we do CNC routing, we do welding, mm -hmm. we do woodworking. A huge part of what our our 
work is is building packing it's yeah. so fragile uh, so specific never to me. <laughs> i guess you gotta ship it at the end it's all and you know and again that's where when we do more both of these commercial or fine art it's like yeah. a lot of like you know i mean our largest projects in the last six months have not been anywhere local um but you know we just did this huge project for the museum d'orsay and it's like everything had to go out on a semi-truck and be flown over to paris and then get set up you did a large uh piece for tavaris uh strachan 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 um for desert x that Mm -hmm. was a big outdoor correct yeah so everything had to get shipped out there it all had to be waterproof do you guys do the install on those kind of big we did yeah um there are about six people who spent a month out in the desert putting those into holes (laughs) Um, it wasn't just that that was outdoors it was also that it was like in holes that were being excavated into the desert floor so Mm -hmm. there was a real um and these kind of incredible uh encasements that were made um, by a company out there. Did you guys do, like, project manage the excavation, or you were no. just there to drop the... Yeah, we were strictly doing the neon on that project, um, thankfully, because uh, just I can't even really wrap my head around everything else they did on that. That piece mm-hmm. was phenomenal in many, many levels, the time frame being one of them. But, yeah. um, you know, finding a site, excavating it... Um, how many holes were there? Oh my god! Uh, uh, you know, over two hundred, and some of the holes are the letter I was like 35, 40 feet long. Oh, I didn't realize the biggest pieces were that big. They're from huge. The pictures, it's hard to. It's so tell. hard to tell. That piece yeah. is the size of two football fields. Wow. Um, but yeah, that was again like you know, and Tavares is a great person who like when you're talking about like pushes the medium, like you know, it's like okay, you know, not just doing this, not just doing it outside or like laying on the ground, but like mm-hmm. actually in the ground. Um, you know, when he first was talking to us about that project, I was just like, yeah, this is crazy, but like that's awesome. You know, <laughs> like that's the part I do love about working with artists is like you know sometimes there's this like practicality or pragmatism that's like so out the window where you're like mm-hmm. okay so we've got like three months and where is it going to be yeah, nobody pull, knows pull up the calendar. Like, um and yet then it comes together and there's this like magic quality that mm-hmm. like you know being more pragmatic like you would have no magic you know like i there's a um, Sufi teacher, Pirvala Inyat Khan, who talks about like in spiritual practice how like it's really better to sort of put your focus on becoming a clown than like mm-hmm. a holy person because like you know there's this there's this limit of like construct that we bring to anything. And, like, if you just have humor and, like, a willingness to believe the impossible, like, you can, like, accomplish so much more. I mean, that's such a rare combination um, in the art world, (laughs) I think, to be able to, like, you run a small business, you have employees, you have insurance, you have calendars and budgets and schedules, but then to still have the kind of um, sense of humor or flexibility or, like, that sounds impossible, let's do it, is a rare combination. I hear a lot of... Um, fabricators, the longer they do it, the more kind of entrenched in there. That's impossible. I don't want to touch it. That scares me, you know, mentality. So I think that's a great attribute. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
I mean, it's like the archetype of like the wise fool. Like I think that's so important mm-hmm. in art because it is so foolish. Maybe it is frivolous, but like maybe it's the most important stuff yeah. that's happening. I mean, I've I say I say that it's wasteful and frivolous, but I've also dedicated my life well, to it. <laughs> and and maybe it's both. Yeah. Like that's the other thing is sort of this like binary thinking that we have, where I'm like, can it? Can we hold opposites and art? in this way can do that it it clearly is not like it's clearly very valued from a purely economic standpoint Mm -hmm. um Um, i have a question i ask every fabricator um for the podcast what is your favorite tool i loved when you sent that question to me (laughs) and it was like so hard to have like one favorite tool I'd have to say it's a deck of tarot cards. Awesome. That's my favorite for, tool. For decision-making or for... Um... I would say for, like, self-insight, you yeah. know? I mean, I think tarot, again, getting back into, like, art fabrication, but tarot has this amazing visual language. Um, I, you know, I come to use that in my personal practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for a business standpoint, it's really helpful. It's a, a form of a mirror. It's a form of a divination tool. It's a great resource that's, yeah. you know, a lot you can get out of it. So I think a tarot deck is like, you know. That's awesome. How often do you do a reading for yourself? You know, sometimes a few times a day. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, a couple of days will go between it. But pretty pretty regularly. That's awesome. Um, and, I, you know, again, like I... I was like thinking of all the weird specific neon tools. I was like, oh, that's so good. Or, you know, is it a ribbon fire? Or, you know. What's a ribbon fire? Uh, like when you heat up the glass to do a big soft curve. Mm-hmm. But no, I, you know, I mean, I feel like the tools, one of the great things in working with neon, similar to like letterpress or something, is that the tools we work with are pretty much exactly the same as when the medium was invented. Yeah. So there's, you know, great little innovations that keep coming along that mm-hmm. are huge, but like overall... Yeah, essentially they got it pretty right the first time around. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I think we're good. All right. Thank you. A big thank you to Matt for taking the time to speak with us. Listeners can learn more about Light Bright Neon on their website at www.lightbrightneon.com and can follow along with some amazing examples of both commercial and artist projects on their Instagram feed. A final credit to the Bryce Arizabaglia Quintet for our lovely theme song titled Mount Fuji. And please check in at www.craftsmanshippodcast.com and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>